So I am reminded again this year of just how smart the Disney company is. You realize the Disney company is about to make hundreds of millions of dollars without creating another story, just reusing old ones. They don't need new princesses, they don't need new villains, they don't need new plot lines. All they need to do is take the old ones and remake them in a new way, and they're gonna make hundreds and millions of dollars. It is smart. As I was looking at it, there's a list of around eight of these movies that they're about to create, including Lion King, Dumbo, Little Mermaid, and one of my personal favorites, Aladdin. I loved watching Aladdin. I think the reason I loved Aladdin, first of all, I just loved the character of the genie. That was just a fun character. But the other reason I loved Aladdin is because I always thought about, whenever I saw that movie, if I had found that lamp, what would I have asked for? What, were, what would have been my three wishes? Any of you ever do that? It's okay, it's church. Confession's good for the soul. How many of you actually said, oh, these are the three things or 10 things? Or how many of you did this? If I had three wishes, I would wish for unlimited wishes. Any of you do that? That's right, and that's cheating. You cannot do that, right? That's not how that works, but, but you would. And why? Why do you have three wishes? Or why would you wish for unlimited wishes? Because we always want more. We wish for the things in our life that we're not necessarily fully content with so that we can add to our life so that we can be more content with the things that we have. This is advertising today, right? Companies put hundreds of millions of dollars into advertising to remind you exactly why your life is not complete unless you get what they're selling. And they say, you need this, you have to have this. Your life is empty, you cannot be satisfied unless you have this. Which is why all too often uh, we watch TV or we walk through the malls and see what is being sold uh, or we hear the stories of our friends and coworkers who talk about the places they've gone to and the vacations they've had and we look at what they're wearing and what they're buying and we, we see their life on Facebook. They just did a, a brand new landscaping in their backyard or they did, uh, bought a brand new grill or, or they have a brand new car and then we start to create a wish list of all the things that other people have that we wish we had. Some of you have wish lists. You know what the problem with a wish list is? You never get to the bottom of it. Because by the time you start creeping down the wish list, you see another thing you want, and another, and another. And the wish list never ends. And then we utter those words, or our children utter those words, Dad, Mom, all I need is, or I just need, if you get me this one thing, I promise I will never ask for anything else ever again. Children ever say that? Mine have. Do you know what that means? Do you know what I just need means? It means I just need today this, tomorrow I'll ask for something else, right? And you and I are really good at that. Not just our children. God, I just need this promotion. If you, if you just give me this promotion, I promise I'll never ask for anything else till next month. 
God, I just need this relationship to work out. I just need this raise. I just, I just need this new car. I just need this uh, fill in the blank. And we keep saying, I need, I need, I need. And the problem is the wish list never ends because we keep seeing things in our life that we wish we had, that other people have, that we would desire to have in our life because if we had them, we would be satisfied. But even if you got everything you wanted on your wish list, the truth is we would not be satisfied. Because as human beings, we always want more than we have. So why are we never satisfied? And what is it that gives us true satisfaction? We're going to look at that in the ninth and 10th commandments this morning. The ninth and 10th commandments all come from one verse in Exodus chapter 20. As the Lord is speaking to Moses on the mountain, giving him the 10 commandments. Would you read these words with me this morning? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And I know some of you are reading that and going, well, some of that's real easy, because I really don't want somebody else's ox, or donkey, or male servant, or female servant, so I could just check those off. But there's a whole lot of other things we want. There's a whole lot of other things we see in the lives of other people that we would desire for ourselves. Uh, Luther says it this way as he's speaking just about the 10th commandment, that second half, and he says, what does this mean? Would you read the words of the explanation with me as well? We should fear and love God so that we do not entice or force away our neighbor's wife, workers, or animals, or turn them against him but urge them to stay and do their duty. Some of you are like, That's, I'm still okay with that. I don't need their dog or their cat. I don't need their animals, and I'm pretty good with, with some of the things I have. But what coveting means, if you want a definition for coveting, what I would submit as a definition for coveting is, is an ungodly discontent in our life. An ungodly desire for what somebody else has that we don't have that causes us either to grumble against them or complain about the things that God has given to us, an ungodly desire and discontent. We're gonna look at that this morning and how that manifests itself in our lives as we see it manifest itself in the lives of King Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 21. So I'd love for you to open up your Bibles this morning. Um, if you brought them from home, it's in the first half of the Old Testament. Uh, if you are opening up the Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 303, page 303, 1 Kings chapter 21. Now let me set the table for what's going on. The kingdom of Israel at this time is divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. This happened right after the reign of King Solomon. And so in the northern kingdom at this time, the king is a king named King Ahab. King Ahab is a wicked king, and if he is wicked, then his wife Jezebel is even worse. And they reign in the northern kingdom out of their palace in Samaria. So if you look right in the middle of the blue, you will see the star and Samaria. That's where his first palace is at. That's where the kingdom is reigning out of. When they were one kingdom, the capital was in Jerusalem, but in the divided kingdom, the capital is in Samaria. During this time, as 1 Kings chapter 21 rolls around, uh, they actually have a time of prosperity and peace. 
There was a drought that was going on in the land, but in 1 Kings chapter 18, if you read that section, uh, when Elijah goes on the mountain with the prophets of Baal, he defeats the prophets of Baal and rain begins to fall. And the ground is going to be prosperous and there are going to be crops and things are going well. And in 1 Kings chapter 20, we see that one of their enemies, Syria, is driven away. So there is actually time of peace. So this is a good, prosperous time. And you would think, okay, it is good, it's prosperous, the rain is falling, the enemies are at bay, everything is going well. Well, we can be content, we can be satisfied with what we have. But that's not what's going on with Ahab. Ahab has a second palace because he's the king. His second palace is in Jezreel. So if you look at the right screen where the green is, it's right around there. It's about 23 miles north of of, uh, Samaria. And we hear what happens when Ahab goes to Jezreel. Verse 1. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. So we see Ahab, who is wicked, actually acting honorably as he's trying to make a business deal. He says, this, this plot of land that's right next to my palace, I would like to buy it from you, and, and I will either give you more land, better land, or a greater price for the land. So you could imagine, okay, this plot of land is, is 100 acres, I'll give you 130 acres for this 100 acres, or, or this plot of land is worth $200,000, I will give you $250,000 for it. Ahab is making a really good deal, and in the eyes of the world, Most people would say, well, why wouldn't you take that? You're going to have bigger lands, you're going to have more profit, or you're going to have more money than you had to begin with. This is a great deal, and Ahab in this moment seems to be acting generously. But we're going to see that he is going to act generously, but then he's going to act out of the covetousness that's in his heart, because for Ahab, what is happening is his eyes are beginning to wander. His eyes are beginning to wander from the things that God has given him to the things that God has given to somebody else. So Naboth offers this, verse 3, or Ahab offers to Naboth, verse 3, but Naboth says to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And so Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now the words of Naboth are extremely important in understanding this text. Naboth says, listen to those words in verse 3 again, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father. If you read Leviticus, If you read Joshua, if you see how God commanded the people of Israel to inhabit the promised land and what he had said to them, the Lord said to them, do not sell the inheritance, the land that I am giving to you. So what Naboth is actually doing is he is holding faithfully to the commandments of God. Naboth is being a faithful follower of the Lord because the Lord said, don't sell your inheritance. And Naboth says, says, Ahab, God forbid it. The Lord forbids that I should sell you this land because I will be content with what God has given me and not this world. I will be content to get what God gives me. It's the opposite of Ahab. 
Ahab was not content to get what God had given him, and Naboth is content to get what God had given to him. And Ahab's eyes continued to wander while Naboth's eyes kept firmly planted on the blessings that God had bestowed upon him in the inheritance that he had been given. And so we see how Ahab responds. It says, so Ahab went away vexed and sullen, and at the end of verse 4 it says, and he lay down on his bed and turned his face, and he wouldn't eat any food. So Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And Ahab said to Jezebel, now you have to hear this in the best whiny three-year-old voice that you possibly can. Right? So, so think whiny three-year-old. If you've ever had a three-year-old, that's not too hard. Okay? So Ahab said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard. And he answered, I'm not giving it to you. And he wouldn't give me his vineyard. And now I'm angry. Tell him to give it to me. Right? I mean, that's Naboth right now. I want it. He has it. Make him give it to me. You hear it? And he turns his face to the wall. And he won't eat anything. What's he doing? He is throwing an adult temper tantrum. Right? I want this, it should be mine, I desire it. He has an ungodly desire from an ungodly discontent with the things God had given him and the things that God had given to somebody else. And he covets. He covets what is not his. Where does this come from? It comes from a sense of entitlement oftentimes. Where we feel, well, well I'm the king. If I'm the king, then my subject should do exactly what I say because I'm entitled to the power that I have. I work really hard at my job, and because I work really hard at my job, I'm entitled to that raise. I'm entitled to that promotion. I work really hard on this relationship. I'm entitled for it to work out. I work really hard. I'm entitled to that vacation. I'm entitled to those possessions. I'm entitled in, in this sense of entitlement that so inhabits our culture today. And Ahab is a perfect example of how entitlement and covetousness and jealousy and ungodly desire all flow together. So Jezebel, who hears this, who actually when you read the scriptures is probably a much better leader, ungodly, but better than Ahab ever was, decides to take matters in her own hands. And this is what happens, verse seven. And Jezebel's wife said to him, do you now govern Israel? Meaning, aren't you the king? Don't you understand the power that you have? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Basically saying, let me show you how to wield power. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. Meaning put him at the head of the table so that everybody sees what's taking place. Everybody's going to notice this and set two worthless men opposite him. Why two? Because in the Old Testament and at that time, you needed the confirmation of two witnesses who had the same testimony to be able to convict someone. So, so they're actually following the pattern of how the law would have worked at that time. To two worthless men opposite him. And let them bring the charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king. Now they would have believed he might have cursed the king because they might have heard the story of how Ahab tried to, to take the land and said, well, yeah, he's probably upset with the king. But these are worthless men who are going to start to tell lies about him. It says, then take him out and stone him to death. 
And the men of his city and elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to him. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast, set Naboth at the head of the people, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city, stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but he is dead. And as soon as, Naboth, or as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Do you see what happens in the breaking of the ninth and the tenth commandment of coveting? What happens is basically everything that Christine said when she stole my sermon. <laughs> you start to break other commandments, right? What happened? By him coveting, she sets up two unfaithful witnesses and they break the eighth commandment. And in breaking the eighth commandment, you shall not bear false testimony, false witness against your neighbor. They break this commandment and by doing that, they end up breaking the fifth commandment. You shall not murder. And they kill Naboth. And in killing Naboth, then Jezebel says to Ahab, hey, Naboth is dead. Go and take the vineyard that is not yours, but is his and the inheritance of his family and take it for yourself. And they end up breaking the seventh commandment. By breaking nine and 10, nine and 10 empowered the breaking of four through eight. And that's what happens in our life. We covet something and we want it, we desire it in such an ungodly way that in coveting it, we start to break the other commandments so that we can get for ourselves what belongs to someone else. A rabbi, a Jewish leader once said it this way, commandments nine and 10 empower four through eight because when you get nine and 10, you won't want somebody else's life. I love that. When you get nine and 10, they will empower four through eight because you won't want somebody else's life. And how often do we? I want their job. I want their possessions. I want their income. I want what they have. And we turn our eyes from our vineyard to somebody else's vineyard, from our daily bread to somebody else's daily bread, from our plate to theirs. We go, why don't I have what they have? Why can't I have what they've received? I deserve it. Don't you understand how hard I work? And Paul reminds us that when we break the ninth and 10th commandment, we actually are breaking the first commandment all along. Ephesians 5 says it this way, Paul says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. We covet. We turn our eyes from what God has given to us so that we might have what somebody else has. And so we undermine and we hurt other people to gain that. We do it with business contracts. Instead of standing honorably on what we do, we begin to tell lies about another business so that we might get that contract. Or we do it with a raise or a promotion. 
so that behind closed doors we begin to undermine a coworker, undermine a boss, undermine somebody else in the company so that they are demeaned so that by lowering them we might raise ourselves. We do it with relationships. We begin to tell lies about somebody so that that relationship falls apart so that we might have it for ourselves. Maybe we do that with our children on their sports teams where we work the sidelines, spreading lies about somebody else's children on the soccer field, or we work the text messages and the phone calls with the coach to try to undermine another player so that our child might have a better place on the team. And we covet in those moments. We want for ourselves what belongs to somebody else. Paul also talks about this, and he talks about what is the solution to coveting, which Christine already told you, which is in 1 Timothy, and it says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. A preacher once said it this way, that every thou shalt not could actually be followed by a that you may. Thou shalt not bear false testimony, that you may have better relationships. Thou shalt not steal, so that you may rejoice in what you have. Thou shalt not covet, that you may be content with the vineyard that God has blessed you with. And he says, you brought nothing into this world. You can't take anything out. I know I've shared this before, but I just think this is such an important image that we always remember is that you will never see a U-Haul following a hearse, ever. You cannot take it with you. Nobody gets buried in a house-sized coffin. Somebody else gets it. You came into this world with nothing, you leave this world with nothing, and we need to be content instead with what God has given us. And how many of us would actually be able to say, verse eight, you know what, all I need is food and clothing and I'm happy. I don't need the vacation, I don't need the cars, I don't need the big house, I don't need all those other things. I just need food and clothing. But when we look around us, we don't have that contentedness. When I was able to go to Honduras, we're actually sending another mission trip to Honduras, these words were just, just so vivid in those moments. When I got to spend time with Rosabel and with Noe and with Nicole and with so many other children who were in Honduras and see how they live, how they have been left on the doorstep of the orphanage in a box with nothing. And now they're fed and clothed and educated and cared for and they just, they, they are just so happy to have food and clothing. And there are times where you and I, we need to keep our eyes on our own vineyard and understand that the grass is not always greener on the other side. Or understand this, no one has ever reached the end of the rainbow, have they? No one. And we can keep running after it and seeking for it and striving for it, but no one has ever reached the end of the rainbow because it keeps moving further and further and further away. He's saying, be content. Rejoice in what God has given to you because when you rejoice and you're content, then you can be generous with what you have for the sake of other people. Then you can be generous for the sake of, of caring for other people and loving other people and blessing other people. And then Jesus says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. 
they will be content. Not when we seek after bigger vineyards and nicer houses. And, 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 and here's the deal about coveting. Coveting doesn't say having a nice house and having a nice car and having nice possessions is bad. It's not saying that. Those are all blessings from God. What it's saying is the problem is when we look at what somebody else has and we grumble and complain about it because of what we have and we look at their vineyard instead of our vineyard because God has blessed you with what you have. And Jesus says, hunger and thirst, not for a bigger vineyard, but for righteousness. Because then you'll be satisfied. In fact, I love the way that a preacher, John Piper, said it. He said it this way. He said, God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. Not in your vineyard, not in the things of this world, not in your glory, not in having a better position or place than somebody else around you, not having a greater name or, or children who have a greater sports career. None of that glorifies God the most. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And the question that goes with coveting is this, is Jesus enough? Is his grace, is his mercy, is the daily bread that he gives you, is his love is Jesus enough? Because when Jesus is enough, we won't need to fill our lives with what everybody else has because we will be content with what we have because that's his gift to us and we will be satisfied in him. In Jesus' name, amen.